If you um, would grab a Bible and turn to 2 Peter, that's where our text will be this morning. 2 Peter. In Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 51, it says that when the days came near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, there came a point in the ministry of Jesus where what he needed to do uh, after all the teaching and after all the preaching and after all the preparation, after all the miracles and after all of that stuff, there came a point where he had to go to the cross and he set his face toward Jerusalem. We are in that season, that season of celebration, if we can call it that, I, I guess we do call it that, a celebration of Jesus walked towards Jerusalem. If you are paying attention, you'll notice that every year the church walks through the life of Jesus. That Jesus is the very shape of our year. We celebrate his coming and foretelling of his coming through the prophets and all of the Old Testament uh, in the season of Advent. We celebrate Jesus' actual arrival in the season of Christmastide. We celebrate... um, uh, we celebrate his ministry and how he manifests himself in the season of Epiphany. And then as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, we ponder the trek to the cross, to the tomb, and up from the grave in the season of Lent where we find ourselves here today. And during the season, we begin to ask ourselves, I think, I think I'd like Lent maybe most of all, <laughs> I just thought, that just is suiting, like I so said, the dark season, right? That's, um, I think I like Lent most of all because it's the season where people ask tough questions. We begin to ask ourselves, in the face of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, are we living up to that calling? What do we need to write in our lives? How do I need to prepare? In fact, Lent was a season that traditionally led up to a bunch of baptisms on uh, Resurrection Sunday. And so people would be fasting and they would be praying and they would be giving alms and they'd be serving the poor. And they would be really digging in deep and saying, how, how can I follow Jesus? What does he want from me? What's interesting about the message of Jesus is he comes with a message of preparation, doesn't he? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a message of preparation. Repent is a fancy word that means change. It means change your mind. It means change your life. It means get ready for something because something is coming. And Jesus even tells us what that something is. He says the kingdom of God is coming. That is the time when God will break into reality and he will judge and condemn his enemies and he will lift up and restore his children and all of creation and rule over them forever and ever. Amen. And if you know that God is marching on the world with his heavenly hosts, then now is the time to prepare. Now is the time to be ready for that. Jesus has an intense message of preparation there. And so during this season, uh, we want to consider that. We want to consider how do we prepare our hearts, our minds, so that we could live up to this great thing that God has done. We do that by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We might call those things, that fruit, we might call it virtue. Um, And I like that word virtue. It kind of has kind of old feel, you know, to me. I thought I'd spare you Latin this time. So we went with virtue. Peter outlines also tongues. We're doing tongues this morning. (laughs) 
Peter does this really cool chain in 2 Peter chapter 1 that I like. And it's sort of a link-by-link chain and description of different virtues. I want to do something a little different, though. I want to jump ahead before we actually get into that chain. I want to jump ahead to verses 10 through 12. So, um, again, first Peter, or 2 Peter sorry, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. If you'll find that and follow along. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, and of course, he hasn't, we haven't read the qualities yet, but we're about to. If you practice the qualities that I just told you about, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them are and are established in the truth that you have. Now, this is I think an eminently important uh, thing to point out before we jump into these virtues because it shows us how important they are to Peter. Do you notice the things that he says here? He says these virtues will confirm, they will prove your calling and election. Do you want to know if you're a real Christian? These virtues will reveal that. And in confirming our calling and election, we're provided entry into the kingdom of of God, that these are preparing us to receive the good news. These are preparing us to receive the inheritance that was promised. Therefore, he says, I want to remind you again and again and again and again. I'm going to keep hammering these home and I'm never going to stop, even though you've heard them a hundred thousand times, because you need to have this in your life. You need to let these things change you. Why? Because it, we, he sort of backtracking a little bit about what he said in verse 10 there, but why? Because they establish you in the truth. They confirm your calling. They confirm your election. They confirm this. They confirm that you are a real Christian. You are a real follower of Christ. And so as we go um, through this list over the next several weeks, I think we're in for a real life-changing experience. Real life-changing experience. Peter begins his letter um, in the second half of a verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. So just jump to the top of the page. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, uh, that's something, isn't it? Peter, the guy who walked and talked with Jesus. Peter, the guy who who did miracles himself. Peter, the guy uh, who was present when Jesus appeared in the upper room. Peter, the guy who planted the very first church, preached the first sermon, right? He spoke in tongues and did all of these incredible things we read in the book of Acts. Peter says to the average pew sitter then and now, he says to you who have, of, who have obtained the same faith, an equal faith with me. I think that's important to point out because our tendency as we read the, um, the standards of Scripture is to think, man, I can't live up to that. Man, I, I can never do that. You know, that's for those super Christians. That's for those people who come out Sunday morning, do Sunday night, 
do Wednesday night, do Bible. It's for those people who are really busy. I just, I, you know, this is not for me. No, Peter says this is for all of us. I'm speaking to all of us. Why? Because the ground that we all stand on is the same, whether you're a super Christian or you're a terrible Christian, right? If you're an apostle or you just got baptized last week, it doesn't matter. The ground is the same. We all stand on faith and God calls all of us to add to that faith virtue. And so that, to me, is an incredible thing that needs to to stand out. And I love what he says next in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now that's, that's a lot. And I'm not going to dig through all of that stuff, but I want to make a few quick points as we dive into this thinking of faith and, and, and virtue. And first, I want to notice this, the first two words out of his mouth, his divine, three words, sorry, power, his divine power. Notice that, that as you start your life of faith, It doesn't begin with you. It doesn't end with you. You don't empower yourself. All of it emerges from God's own power. He empowers you. And I love that. That brings glory to God. It means that, man, I I who am small and I who am weak and I who, looking at these things, say I could never accomplish any of that stuff. God says, yeah, you're right. You can't. Don't worry about it. I will empower you. His divine power. Uh, power allows us to pursue virtue. And it's imperative to remember that, that, that he's called us to some incredible things. You see that? That his divine power has allowed us to have everything necessary for what? Life and godliness. That we could have a knowledge of him. Because we are called to what? Glory and excellence. Do you hear that? You, you are called to glory and you are called excellence and God will empower you to make it make it so so that we might partake of the divine nature of God think about that for a second and that's something that both brings me low and lifts me up in the same same breath to be a partaker of the divine nature that means that in God who is love and peace and joy and faithfulness and self-control, God who is full of all of these things and me who is full of so few, if any, of these things have now been initiated, have been changed, have been filled with the Holy Spirit so that that nature which belonged to God and didn't belong to me at all, in fact, what was I according to Ephesians 2? I was a child of wrath. I belonged as far away from God as possible. In fact, I was choosing my own way, choosing my own sin, constantly in opposition to God. But now God has transformed me so that I can partake in his very nature. Don't think you're too small to do great things. To take on the very nature of God is the inheritance of every single Christian. Every single Christian. 
He's not talking, again, to super Christians. He's not talking to the apostles. He's writing a letter generically. It's to the churches. You have been filled with his divine power. You are partakers of the divine nature. You have escaped the world that is full of corruption and sin and decay and death. You are made for glory. You are made for excellence. And yet we find in so many Christians, and if I'm honest about myself, me as well, that we are insouciant about our moral development. We are so slow and lackadaisical about picking up this torch and, and, and running with it. But the Bible assumes here and elsewhere that there will be in the average Christian a steady growth of virtue. A steady growth in godliness. A steady growth in moral excellence. Now this doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. This doesn't mean that you won't once in a while give in to the temptations of the body or of the mind. Who of us have not said a word and wished that we could like grab it and reel it back in? Like these things happen. But the point is two things. First of all, that is not your nature. Your default settings have now been changed. You are no longer Windows 7, Lisa Irwin. You're Windows 10. Or maybe it would be better, Apple, Apple Windows. You were with the ungodly Apple people, right, Eric? And now you have switched over and you're with Android or whatever. Your default nature has now shifted. You are changed, which means, secondly, that those mistakes that, that happen, right? These things that happen, these are not the norm for the Christian. They are the exception because the rule is now you are glory. You are excellence. You are partaking of God's own divine nature right so so we need to grab a hold of that truth and and recognize it because i think part of it is just a recognition of what god is doing in you and accepting that in faith and saying you know what yeah i am made for more than this i don't want this garbage that the world has to offer me i want truth and life and joy and peace and god has has empowered me to be the person that takes it Change your mind, right? Repent of this kind of attitude that I, I, I see in Christians sometimes. It's just like, well, you know, I'm just human. No, you're not. You're not. I like what C.S. Lewis says. Um, he says, there are no ordinary people that you have never talked to a mere mortal. Everyone here, every single person here is immortal. Every single person is. It is immortal's whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. We are either, and I like this phrase, immortal horrors or um, everlasting splendors. That's what we have in this room. And the question, uh, of course, is, 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 is who are you? Um, who are you? I like what, uh, what Peter says then as we get into the actual, this, this chain, as we begin this chain of virtue. He says, for this reason, we'll do about half of verse 5 this morning. Um, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Peter says, make every effort. We might uh, literally translate this something like, make haste, run for it. Uh, grasp it, chase it down. Like you, you're, you're, don't be slow about this. No, you're, the, the gun fired, it's time for you to run. Make haste. Make haste. Are you making haste? Uh, I, I know, honestly, we want to we look at uh, uh, the, the world um, 
We were even uh, bemoaning it wherever they went. They haven't, uh, where are you at, Elise? Did you run out on me? Oh, no, there you are, hiding behind Irwin girls. Irwins and Rugers. Um, you need to pick, so when you uh, join a church, you pick a seat and you stay there. Every Sunday, right? And then if somebody comes up and they sit in your seat, you say, dude, that's my seat, right? Um, just that, that's so I can keep track of people. But we were bemoaning sort of the state of the world this morning as we were chit-chatting. And, and I know that we want to think that there is this sort of bright and glorious moment when like the world was great and everyone was a Christian and things like that. That's never the state of the world, right? They just didn't have Netflix to binge all day long. And so they went to church because what was there, right? I, that, that's, but now that we see sort of a, a falling away, we see even whole churches rejecting biblical doctrines that Christians have believed from, from, from day one, right? And that rejecting that stuff doesn't, doesn't prove that somehow the world is getting worse than it was. No, the world's always been terrible. Read your Bibles, right? We are, we are nature, by nature, children of wrath. That's never not been true. Double negative, sorry. Uh, but now it's just being made manifest here. I have said uh, before uh, that there will be more Christians in the kingdom of God than you imagine. Uh, I was wrong. That's dumb. I shouldn't have said that. I don't know if I said that here or not. But if I did, I apologize. Uh, what does Jesus say? He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that lead to destruction, and many people find it. Why? Because we love easy stuff. Who doesn't love things being easy? But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and only a few people find it. And I know that runs counter to everything Oprah's told you. Um, and I, I really do not want, want to be the prophet of doom and gloom. And if you're new here today or you're not a Christian, I, I'm not negative Nancy up here, but I am trying to be honest. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we're not, we don't do a lot in church for some reason. Like we're not honest with one another about our struggles. We're not honest with one. Like this is the one place where everyone gets together and says, hey, we need Jesus. <laughs> we're saying that, right? Hey, we need Jesus. We're broken. We're screwed up. Uh, we need each other, we need Jesus. Like, that's this place. If we can't be honest in church, my goodness, the world's in for, like, doom, okay? So, and so what we have here is, 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 is Jesus, or Peter saying, listen, you need to confirm your calling and election. Don't just sit back and say, well, I'm, I got baptized, you know, well, I'm, I'm fine, I'm saved. He says, make haste, right, to supplement supplement your faith. What does that mean? That means that faith isn't enough. Faith isn't enough. I know that's a little bit controversial, so let me, let me explain before you start throwing hymnals. Do we have hymnals still? We did. Okay, good. Don't throw hymnals. It's not nice. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Hold her arm down. Just run cover for me, man. Like, where are you on this? I haven't complimented your purpleliness. Um, faith must be supplemented. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, that faith is not the grounds for salvation. No, faith is. The Bible goes to great lengths. Paul especially goes to great lengths to say that it is faith, not virtue, by which we are saved. Right? By grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That it does not rest on my virtue, but rather it rests upon the work and sufficiency of Jesus through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? And so, so, and this is a problem in churches because we have people here, uh, 
and in every, in every church, you have people who have been doing lots of things for church. You know, I, I'm, I'm here all the time, or I'm helping with this, or I'm helping with that, or I'm giving lots of money. And, and their, their, their actual hope rests in that. No, it rests in your faith, right? When, when, when Jesus tells the story of the two people, the one who is the Pharisee who says, look at all these great things I'm doing for you, Lord. Look at how wonderful I am. I'm so glad I'm not a sinner like this guy over here. And this guy over here says, I'm a sinner. He won't even look up to the sky because he's afraid, because he's fearful, because he's repentant. And he says, I'm a sinner, God. I need your grace. And Jesus says, this guy is justified, not that guy, right? Faith is the moment... Uh, where Abraham hears God, believes him, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Faith is the moment where David says to Saul, hey, listen, don't let anybody's heart melt because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight him. Faith is the moment where Isaiah, standing in this glory-filled temple, having this theophany, this vision of God, says, here I am, Lord, send me. Right? Faith is the moment, the transition I hate to say moment of salvation because we get like really finicky there, but it, it's a moment of transition that you have. It's a moment of change. It's partnered up with, with what we call repentance, right? But what happens if Abraham never left and went to the country God told him he would give them? What, what would happen if David had chickened out and didn't fight Goliath? What would happen if Isaiah never went to the people God sent him to? Or perhaps he went, received a beating, got stoned, and ran away and never returned again. What would happen there? We would say that the faith that they said they had was not real, right? Because faith and faithfulness, if there is a difference between them, it is so incredibly small as to be unobservable. Those who have faith will supplement their faith with what? With virtue. Faith and faithfulness work together and that leads us to the question of okay you say you have faith wonderful great marvelous i'm super super happy about that now in the same breath how are you adding to it virtue how are you adding to it proof that the calling and election that you have been uh, given is really real he uses this word virtue next and i know we're calling the whole series virtue and here we have this one word virtue um, and, and the reason we're doing it this way is because each one of the links in this chain that, 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 that Peter is, is crafting for us is uh, a higher, high moral standard, which is the definition of virtue. This word here that appears is, is kind of a strange word. It appears in the New Testament five times. There is no Old Testament correlation. It's a Greek philosophical term. It doesn't, doesn't have any Hebrew connection. And so there isn't like a word that we can go to back and forth. The four time, four of the times that it appears, it appears here uh, in, in second, first and second Peter. And, and basically what it means is, within Greek culture, it meant the moral actions that I do that justify or don't justify me. So if I'm a person of virtue, then I'm, you know, uh, and, and this is kind of why we got the knight, right? The knight, the, the moral, excellent individual, this person who is doing all of the right things, that's, that's virtue within the Greek culture. Is that the way that Peter is talking about it here, though? Right? Our society talks this way. Our society says, and this is how we get people who say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Like, if you measured me out, I'm more good than bad. 
uh, you know, this is how we get people who, who, who talk about being good without God. Or we look at people who have no example of God in their life whatsoever, and yet we say, well, that's a good person. They're doing lots of good things. Right? This is not the way the Bible talks. This is not biblical talk whatsoever. This is not Christian talk. Right? There is no one good, what Paul says. Right? There is no one good. Now, there are people who do nice things. Not everybody is a serial killer or Hitler or something like that, right? But, but we are all broken. We are all broken. The divine power of God, he said, remember in verse 3, it is by God's divine power that he grants us that which is uh, obtainable for life and godliness, the knowledge of him, right? And that's an important line if you want to underline that, a knowledge of him, because what does that tell us? That tells us something very important. Without a knowledge of God, how could you ever keep the virtue of God, right? So not only does God empower us, but he gives us a knowledge of himself so that we're capable of doing that which he is called to do, because God is the one who sets the standard, not you, not culture, God. And so that, that creates something that is, that is very different. Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says this, among whom, so it's, he, I'm kind of breaking in the middle of a, of, a, of, a, of a chunk of teaching, but he's talking about how we've been saved as Christians. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that we were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us, etc., etc. So this, this and many more verses describe that, that we are naturally bent toward evil. Now this, again, doesn't mean that people can't do nice things. But our default setting is our own selfishness, is our own desires. Let me give you... Let me give you the example that came to me or what I, what I was thinking of as I'm raising a little girl and she is watching, um, watching things on TV. I was sort of thinking about what I watched when I was her age and a little bit older. And I thought of the Cosby show, which I hate to even bring up now, thinking of the horrific acts that uh, Bill Cosby is now accused of. But let's set that aside for a moment. This was sort of, sort of a wholesome family show. And I remember this episode really well where Theo, who is, have you all seen the show? Am I like, okay, okay. So I need to explain all these characters. All right, so where Theo has gone off to college and, and the, the, the parents uh, discover that he is now living with his girlfriend, right? And they're, they're sort of outraged by this. They're very upset by this to the point of which they're going to uh, cut him off from any financial uh, help, They're like you're on your own, we're not, we're not supporting this kind of behavior, right? They were only living together, guys. Can you imagine a TV show now, a family show? Maybe you can tell me afterwards, but I can't imagine. From what I've seen of family TV, there is not a family show that would even bat an eye at people living together, right? But this is a moral, this is a moral thing. So I mean, you're looking at like 25 years, something has changed so much so that we're watching a cartoon um, with Emery and they're um, it, 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 for five-year-old kids and they're inputting um, storylines about lesbians um, uh, in fairy tales. Uh, and so well, the, the shift is, is huge. So what, what, was, what was sort of scandalous back then now is like nothing and, and, and 
Why is that? Because we have defined what's right and wrong. We are, we would look at a family, so living together, you know, Theo's a nice kid, he's a good kid, he's going to college, doing all this stuff, he's fine, God's not going to judge him for that, you know, he's doing all of this other good stuff, no, but in the end, what is he doing? He is still bent toward what he wants to do, he is still bent toward his own desires, and that is the natural person, the person who is not empowered by God's divine nature, the person who is not full of God's spirit, the, the person who is not seeking the scriptures to have a deeper knowledge of God, the person who is not tasting the divine nature is not capable of actually living a virtuous life. They can't do it. They need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And without Jesus, in one way or the other, we will prove that we are by nature people who are disobedient toward God. And if we are disobedient toward God, we are the children of wrath, not the children of promise. And there is no middle ground on these things. There's no middle ground on these things. And so the real test for the Christian comes as Peter is talking. He says, I, want you to, I don't want you to be down and I don't, you want to, I don't want you to be doubtful, but I want you to confirm the calling that you've been given. I want you to confirm your election. Why? Because you are the people of promise. You're the people who are called to glory. You're the people who are called to excellence. You're the people who are called to joy and peace and, and love and patience and, and kindness and faithfulness and self That's who you are. But make sure that you make that, confirm, that, that election confirmed by adding the virtue to it. And so what we have then is something going on probably in each and every one of our lives in some way this morning. That is, your body, your mind, your will want something. And the scriptures say no. And the question that lays before you, that is the evidence of whether or not your faith is real, that you truly belong to Jesus, is which path do you take? The broad or the narrow? And the broad is easier. It is always easier. It always will be easier. Because not everyone is going to be called and able to take a path that is glory and excellence. But you have been called to something greater, church. You have been called to leave behind the sinfulness of the world. You have been called to leave behind filth and unrighteousness and things that are transitory and passing. You are called to live a life that is one of glory, that is one of power, that is one of promise, that people would look at you and say, there is something wrong with that group of people. Like they are just something, we don't even know what to do with these people. We don't know what to do with them. That's you. That's you. Peter says, live up to it. You've been given faith. Add to it. Don't sit back and say, well, I believe in Jesus. No, believe in Jesus and run. Run with it. And that leads me to sort of the conclusion that I, I love most of all in all of this. And, and, that's, and that's this, that we, we begin with the story of Jesus in, in, uh, in Advent where the prophets foretell, I am going to send someone to save you. What did you do to earn that? Nothing, right? You weren't even born yet, so you had nothing to do with it. Then Jesus comes into the world, and and, and he's born, and and he enters into ministry, and he teaches, and he preaches, and he changes lives, and he proclaims to generation after generation through the holy word of God, repent and come to me. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. I want to empower you with that spirit. He dies on the cross. What did you do to deserve that? What did you do to even have a hand in that? God did it before you were born. God offers it to you even now. He raises the Son of God up from the dead that you might rise from the dead as well, that you might have an inheritance of the kingdom of God. What did you do to earn that? What did you do to, 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 to make that happen? Nothing. Nothing at all. And God says, what do I want you to do? I want you to put faith in me. Put faith in me. And it says here in this text, because we would think then, well, I put faith in me. This is a gift of grace and all that sort of thing. And now, well, now it's up to me. And I got to work hard. Got to work hard to be a Christian. He says, God's divine power. God's divine nature. God's divine promises. God's Holy Spirit, which is in you, changing you, making you, equipping you, so that you might be the people who can add virtue to your faith, which, which means what? Even virtue itself is a grace and gift from God. Even virtue itself is a grace and gift from God. He lays before you the path. He says, I'll walk with you on this path. Are you walking with him this day? Let's think about that. Let's prepare our hearts and minds for that as we stand and sing this song.